Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. This is a pre-recorded show which will be uploaded for your listening edification on the evening of Monday, June the 15th of 2020. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. This is our ninth post-COVID show, A New World, But the Same Place. So tonight, we continue our fearless investigation and desire to become anti-racist. We seek to provide the rationale and legitimacy for reparations. We do so through reviewing the history and present economic conditions behind arguably the ethically legitimate call for the redressing of harm to African Americans that has historically occurred and is occurring currently. This harm provides not just the legitimacy of reparations, but also, along with similar disproportionate economic wealth, harms suffered by other disenfranchised people of colors has created the conditions long ago which are largely responsible for the protests sweeping our country and the world. Last week, we detailed the specific inequities that have created a structural inequality that has resulted in the huge racial wealth divide. We argue our belief that they must be addressed and drastically reversed. We also began addressing and dismantling some of the myths that seek to rationalize that wealth divide through the work of economist and Samuel Bois Cook Professor of Black Studies at Duke University, Dr. William Darity. This week, we continue that discussion. Dr. Darity is connected to a team of researchers that have empirically documented profound inequalities and deconstructed the myths behind them, as well as proposed solution-oriented approaches for implementation to eliminate second-class citizenship and status. We believe there is no such thing as a lesser human being, that all life is sacred, and everyone deserves similar opportunities to succeed. We have followed the work of Dr. Darity and his team on bringing light into darkness, We have had Dr. Darity as a guest a half dozen times or more since 2014. Tonight, we share some clips of some of these dialogues as we bring more light to issues around, one, his testimony regarding H.R. 40 bill sponsored by Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas and introduced in January of 2019, a bill originally introduced by John Conyers in 1989 and subsequently every year since until his 2017 retirement from Congress. Two, the history and failed promises made to ensure that the 40-acre assignments were actually going to be distributed to the folks that had been enslaved following the Civil War. Three, past precedents of past reparation programs. Four, three basic components of the reparations program and eligibility criteria as envisioned by Dr. Darity and Kirsten Mullen, authors of From Here to Equality. And five, the evidence that contradicts and merits the chastising of President Obama for his own enabling and promoting of the lack of personal responsibility narrative that is so pervasive in our public discourse and so damaging to the collective psyche of the vast majority of African Americans and other disenfranchised people that bust their butts to succeed but make little or no headway thus often internalizing that they are a failure rather than the much greater truth that society has abandoned them. The clips from tonight's show 
come mainly from March 5th, 2018 interview and, and more generally from the January 15th, 2019 show. Back after this. So stay tuned. Bringing Light into Darkness dedicates this show in the context of Juneteenth celebration that Co-op Radio honors each year throughout the month of June. But first, as we do before every show, we first go to war. So this is a clip excerpt. It is from the show that I originally did with Dr. William Darity, July 15th, 2019. And we focus on some of the history and foundations for the arguments for reparations. I wanted to go back to this bill with, with our guest, Dr. William Darity, and the testimony that Dr. Darity was invited to present was for June 19th, 2019. He was unable to attend, but he actually put together a written testimony regarding, again, concerning this H.R. 40, regarding this commission to study and develop reparation proposals of African Americans Act, the 116th Congress, 2019 to 2020. And in the testimony that you provided, one of the things that you addressed, and maybe this is a good place to start, Dr. Darity, had to do with the actual language of the H.R. 40. So when you look at the summary of the bill, it says this bill establishes the commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans. The commission shall examine slavery and discrimination in the colonies and the United States from 1619 to the present and recommend appropriate remedies Among other requirements, the commission shall identify, one, the role of federal and state governments in supporting the institution of slavery, two, forms of discrimination in the public and private sectors against freed slaves and their descendants, and three, lingering negative effects of slavery on African Americans and society, referring to, of course, today. And I guess one of your concerns in your written testimony, maybe you can elaborate on it, is that you felt that really reparations should be calculated and should be evaluated from 1776, the founding of our nation, and a a national government that that emerged from that through today. So can you first maybe just highlight your testimony regarding that particular point and then elaborate on some of the principles that you outline in your testimony that I found very enlightening? So I think that I think that it's important that we recognize that a reparations claim from black descendants of American slavery must be directed at the United States federal government. And insofar as the federal government did not exist before 1776, then I think that the anchor year 
for the development of a bill of particulars and of an estimate of the size of the reparations plan must be the formation of the republic. And that's particularly the case because at that point, there was actually a potential option of the United States forming without slavery being something that was a legal institution. On the contrary, the United States did a new country, but it was also a new country where slavery was fully legalized. And that remained the case until we had the bloody civil war that resulted in a uh, union triumph that was associated with the decision to free the formerly enslaved folks from their bondage. But I think that if we're going to make a serious case for reparations, it's hard to talk about the period before 1776 because there's much greater ambiguity as to whom would be the culpable party or parties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I guess to understand and, and properly judge the merits of any argument or point of view regarding the reparations issue would require a well-vetted understanding of that history, of the history of not just slavery, but also post-Civil War Reconstruction period. And in your testimony, which I found very compelling in many ways, you actually talk not just about the federal government's role, but that they abandoned the opportunity to provide that immediate compensation. So for those that are not familiar, they had been promised allotments of at least 40 acres of land. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? The folks that did get certain allotments, the ones that did not, and how that was the continuation. The end of slavery was not the end. Uh, the, the injustices of, of African Americans suffered, but was just moved into a new stage that was marked by some of these failed promises. Can you, can you give us that history summarized for us? I start with General Sherman having a meeting with a group of black males who were spokesmen for the black community at the beginning of 1865. So this is January 1865. So the war is still taking place. But at this point, Sherman meets with these black leaders, all of whom I think were ministers, who were asked, what exactly is the plan of action that's consistent with your desires for the the post-Civil War period? And I think with one exception, all of the individuals who were gathered there said that they really wanted three things. One was land. The second was an opportunity to educate their children. And the third was to be left alone. So Sherman then proceeded to issue Special Order 15, which designated a significant swath of the land that ran along the Atlantic Ocean from South Carolina to North Florida to designate that land as a territory that could be settled by the formerly enslaved. And I think that the process of settlement actually took place where up to about 40,000 formerly enslaved persons were located on 400,000 acres of land. So that was actually the beginning of the process of making sure that the 40-acre assignments actually were going to be distributed to the folks who had been enslaved. The problem was that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, and his successor, Andrew Johnson, was, to some, to some people's surprise, was an unvarnished sympathizer with the former white aristocracy in the South. And so he sent General Oliver O. Howard 
who said that this was the most difficult and perhaps the worst thing he ever had to do in his life. This is the General Oliver O. Howard, for whom Howard University is named. Uh, he sent General Oliver O. Howard to the coastal regions where black folks had begun to establish their own homes and farms to inform them that they would have to leave those properties, that they were going to be removed from those properties. And in fact, ultimately, Andrew Johnson restored the properties to the former slaveholders. And so that was the beginning of the end of this process of the provision of land grants to the formerly enslaved. And as Frederick Douglass was to point out a few years after this, this, this occurred, the United States didn't even do what the Tsar of Russia did on behalf of the, of the former serfs, who actually did receive land allocations. Nothing, nothing was provided to those who were formerly enslaved. And so I would argue that that's the foundation for the restitution claim that is being made by the descendants of the folks who were enslaved, that for more than 150 years, restitution has never been delivered. Mm -hmm. And so there is a, a claim on the U.S. government that must be made for compensation that has been denied for a long period of time. So let me ask you this before we take our first break here. There are examples that you actually allude to in your written testimony to Congress in which there were reparations in our country given to populations that suffered uh, grievous harm through, through policies. One had to do with the Holocaust. Another had to do with the internment of Japanese Americans at the beginning of World War II. Can you uh, elaborate on those examples just to, so that our listeners can understand better that there's already precedent in our own country for issues connected to reparations? People frequently are concerned about this notion of cutting a check or paying cash to the victims of the grievous injustice that's being, that's being addressed by a reparations program. But in the two cases that you've described, one is the German government's payment of reparations to the victims of the, of the Holocaust. And the second is the United States government's payments to Japanese Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during the course of World War II. The, in both of those cases, there were significant payments that were made to individuals who were eligible recipients. And... I don't have a sense that there has been any kind of historic complaint about making cash payments to those victims. So, so there's something intriguing uh, at best about the kind of resistance that occurs to doing something similar for black Americans. So you'll find a lot of people saying, well, it shouldn't be reduced to a cash payment. But in our society, Harms and damages are typically reduced to some type of cash payment, which is not to say that you can actually you can actually meet a bill in full for the scope of the harm or damage, but you certainly can alter the life opportunities for the folks who receive the payments in such a way that they can experience some degree of restitution for the harms that have been engendered. So in that sense, I think that there's one lesson to be learned from the previous examples, and that lesson is that it's a normal part of the process to make cash payments to the eligible recipient. There's a second thing that I think we can learn in particular from the Japanese-American case, 
which is prior to the adoption of what was known as the American Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which was the Reparations Act on behalf of Japanese Americans. Prior to that, there was a congressional commission. It was known as the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. And this commission had two tasks. The first task was to set the historical record straight about the trajectory of injustice that had been inflicted upon Japanese Americans. And one of the central dimensions of setting the historical record straight was the commission establishing that American officials knew full well that Japanese Americans were not a security threat to the nation, but still they proceeded with this incarceration, this mass incarceration plan. But the second task that the commission had was to actually design a recommended plan of restitution that Congress could potentially translate into legislation for a reparations program. And so I think that the premise behind H.R. 40 is to do exactly the same thing as a prelude to reparations for black Americans, is to establish a commission that would have two responsibilities. The first is to get the historical narrative right about the history of racial injustice in the United States. And then the second is that the commission would actually design a program of restitution for black descendants of American slavery. Very good. Just one other reparations example that I know you're aware of, but our listeners may not be, had to do with January 1st of 1804, the only successful slave revolt in world history, namely Haiti, and ending up uh, having to pay reparations to France. In January 1st of 1804, after defeating three colonial empires at, at the time, France, the British, and the Spanish, along with our own help as a very small economic force at that time compared to these other colonial empires. Saint-Dominique was liberated in the slave revolt, the France colony. Anyhow, Haiti, they became the first free free black republic in the world in 1804. But this Saint-Dominique colony that was liberated in the slave revolt, producing three-quarters of the world's sugar and half its coffee. Perhaps the most profitable colony in history was a cash cow for France. And it was now completely ravaged after all the years of uprising. And as a settlement, after being defeated, all these powers, by the Haitian slave revolt, France demanded, and they were supported by these other big powers, reparations that Haiti had to abide by. It's just an unbelievable. I mean, just uh, it's it's a it's an astonishing story. I mean, it really is uh, the rep- the reparations went in the wrong direction. They did, but this was as recent. It took Haiti up up until like 1945 or 47 to actually pay off this 21 billion dollars, or, or actually it was 150 million francs, but it was more than 21 billion in current U.S. value. And basically, they had to do it, or else they would not have access to the world market, and and they ended up, you know, with all of the interest and all that, paying, you know, substantially more. Let me just close this section by making the point we have documented on other Bringing Light into Darkness shows and what a cursory study of history reveals, but is rarely mentioned. And that is colonialism built the wealth of nations off the backs of slavery and grossly underpaid labor. Just as France and England fueled their industrial development off the backs of slaves, largely through their colonial possessions, as did the Portuguese and Spanish conquistadors before that, So did we, the United States, do the same through the disenfranchisement and near-complete 
extinction of indigenous people and the enslaving of African slaves. The result is for generations, blacks had no recourse to produce and accrue wealth of their own to pass on to future generations. And as you mentioned, Dr. Darity, upon that followed Jim Crow laws and the additional layers of discrimination in the form of disproportional incarceration rates, police killings, and a myriad of other forms of discrimination in the marketplace that has together produced such a monumental racial wealth divide that only a radical structural impact can correct. And that includes, as a centerpiece, the argument for reparations, which we will have you further explicate after the break. Anyhow, let me ask you if you can just hang on, Dr. Darity. We were speaking to the esteemed economist and professor at Duke University, Dr. Dr. William Darity. <laughs> I, I didn't know I was esteemed, but okay. <laughs> well, you are, whether you whether you like it or not. But uh, thank th- thanks. I'm mostly old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, anyhow, we're we're really blessed to have you on. We need to take a quick break though and we'll be we'll be right back after this. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness and this is Pedro Gatos along with my host Aaron. We'll be back right after this. We are back. We're back here in the studio. We are visiting with Dr. William Darity from uh, from Duke University. We were speaking to him about testimony that he gave to Congress and it was just last month on the the 19th, actually, of June, which, of course, is Juneteenth down here in Texas, which I found kind of coincidental. Actually, that was intentional on the part of Representative Sheila Jackson. I was going to ask you that. I imagine it... Yeah. She is a a representative from Texas. That is correct. I think she quite quite consciously set the hearing date. For, for June 10th. Yeah, I, I think you, there's no doubt. Well, well, well listen, I want to just share with folks that Dr. Darity has been working on this subject, among others, of course, for going on three more than three decades now. And so the historical context that you're so aware of really, I think, builds into the legitimacy of what you presented in your written testimony. We don't have time to go through all of it, but I did want you to comment on a couple of things. Namely, there were six principles that you felt needed to be met, that there needs to be an acknowledgement of the grievous harm and the grievous history that we're talking about. There also needs to be redress and there needs to be closure. And, And I don't need you to speak to those three things specifically. If you want to, that's fine. But I was particularly interested of, of these six principles that must be met. And and you've already mentioned one at the top of the show with respect to how black reparations, the United States government is the culpable party that uh, must meet the obligations of, of, of awarding restitution to those eligible. Uh, but then you move into several other ones and some of them are connected to the government itself, but others really speak to how the whole process continued post-slavery with sort of like a legal authority framework that, that not just had sanctioned slavery, but then legal segregation in the United States and then continues to permit ongoing racist practices. We have had such an upsurge, and I don't even know if it's how much of an upsurge, but at least more visible in the social media deal of of African-Americans being basically murdered um, by police in horrific types of cases and such. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of these injustices taking new forms and, and sort of this structured inequality that has been reproduced 
and, and it's part of the baggage of not having these reparations. You have argued convincingly that wealth is the most important barometer of security for, for any American, but can you kind of walk us through some of the principles that you allude to when you mention these six principles? Let me start by talking about the notion that continuously seems to surface that the idea of reparations allegedly is absurd because you were asking people who never owned slaves to pay something to people who never were slaves. And that formulation is predicated on the assumption that a reparations program is exclusively centered on the harms of slavery. But the difficulty with that formulation, and, and, and this speaks directly to the way in which Tanasi Coates addressed Mitch McConnell's comments. Right. Uh, the difficulty with that formulation is that there's a lot of horrible things that occurred after slavery ended that perpetuated the, the, the denial of formerly enslaved blacks and their descendants, the denial of full citizenship. And the critical turning point that kind of preserved the negative trajectory was the establishment of the legal regime of segregation in the United States, the Jim Crow regime, which I think in principle is completely inconsistent with the purposes of the 14th Amendment, which established citizenship rights for for the formerly enslaved. And I've never seen the Jim Crow regime openly or explicitly attacked on the basis of the premises of the 14th Amendment, but it strikes me that it's entirely inconsistent with the 14th Amendment. And we had close to 100 years of Jim Crow policies in the United States. That only comes to an end at the point when I personally was about 10 or 11 years of age. And I think, you know, Mitch McConnell is being completely disingenuous in saying that he had no exposure or experience with the periods of atrocities that have been visited on black Americans because he was very much alive during the Jim Crow period. Mm -hmm. But even after that, if we move into the post-Civil Rights Act era, we still have a huge array of injustices that are still operating out of a framework of white supremacy. One of these is the police executions of unarmed blacks. Another is the operation of the system of mass incarceration directed against black folks. So on, on a far more permanent basis than the conditions that Japanese Americans were subjected to, which was a scheme of mass incarceration. We have have mass incarceration for black Americans that goes on from year to year to year. Then we also have ongoing employment discrimination. And then what's most significant from my perspective as an economist, the enormous racial wealth gap, which I think you mentioned a little bit earlier. So all of those are conditions that have outlasted the introduction of the Civil Rights Act to close off the Jim Crow era. But both the Jim Crow era and those subsequent injustices are still objects for attention for a reparations program. We need to take a hard break, Dr. Darity, and we'll be right back to continue this discussion on the elements that justify a reparations program. Back after this. <laughs> 